Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight I'm joined by regular panelist, freelance writer, Julian Murdoch. Hello, everyone. We also welcome back to the show, Rhea Ashalia Monique, community director for Law King and site director at Wowhead. Rhea, welcome back to the show. Hi, everyone. <laughs> this is awesome. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, finally, we welcome first-time guest, freelance writer, and RTS guru contributor, Julian Williams. Julian, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Uh, so I believe uh, we, we agreed that there can only be one Julian, right? So this is kind of our <laughs> Highlander moment. Uh, one of you is going to have to go. One, two, three, not it. You can, you can, just, call me, you can just call me fucking Murdoch. That'll All be right. Fine. Yeah, that'll be great. Uh, yeah, so as you may have, as you may have guessed from uh, this particular uh, panel lineup, we're going to be talking about last week's League of Legends Championship, uh, the current state of the League of Legends metagame, and kind of how esports influence casual play. Uh, but really, first, I just kind of wanted to talk to you, Rhea, and, and you, Julian, about the championship last week. Uh, kind of what were, what were your impressions of it, and uh, you know, did you see anything there that really that really struck you about like what the championship level teams were doing that's different from some of the stuff you see in uh, ranked play? I think um, it was a really it was a really like eye opening. It was one of those things where you don't really get to see a lot of these regions play very much. Like you might, you know, see them play once a while in a, you know, a big tournament, but actually seeing all these regions collide, it was just very interesting to see how they played differently. Like I felt that in general, like U.S. teams were just not very good at getting, you know, they weren't getting global objectives right. And you just notice like the other regions seem to be way better at that. And there was a lot of just adaptive skill. Like it just seemed like other regions were extremely quick to pick up on someone's strategy and adapt to it instantly or make really clutch plays like that or if they all went in they all went in like there'd just be defining moments where they would just suddenly their entire team would show up you wouldn't even expect top to show up but they'd show up as well and they just act as one fluid unit of five players and you don't always see that when you just see us on us tournaments is that kind of my initial thought on it yeah, in addition to that, like um, when I was watching it, it felt weird because I was like I was watching a completely different game than I'm used to. You're seeing all these players at once work in this unified net, and just everyone knows exactly what the other people are doing. And the cohesion you see in that, I haven't really seen a whole lot from uh, a lot of the other U.S. players. Like um, I know there was one instance in particular where um, uh, I think it was I can't remember the team, but. Um, out of nowhere, all five of them were at bottom, and I think it was an American team. It might have been CLG uh, North America. But they were already at Dragon, and the top guy was over there. He's like, wait, we're doing Dragon? Like, it's just unreal how fast they were able to be adaptive. And on top of that, like, um, sometimes you would see uh, they would do things in the tournaments based on just the individual moment-to-moment decisions, which was just alarming. Like, um, I know that during the Grand Finals, the first game that happened um, – it was uh, versus when it was um, Azuba Frost and uh, Taipei. Yeah, that's it. Azuba Frost, uh, Azuba Frost, and Taipei Assassins. Um, Taipei Assassins had a really dominant lead in the World fi- uh, Championship, um, but then they lost it because Azuba Frost team fighting. And then they're like, "Okay, well then we're not going to let them team fight." And I just saw them use constant, constant lane control, the kind of which Azuba Frost couldn't break through. And I'm sitting here like, I've never seen a team do this as effectively as this. Like. Most of the American teams that I watched during the seeding uh, in the original run um, on the playoffs, it was all like there would be occasionally the moment where they were caught out. But 
Taipei assassins just never let them. And then Azubu Frost, like they just came together at once. It was absolutely unreal. I, in my in my opinion, like watching the the top Asian teams play, I mean, I think Rhea, you you kind of hit it. There was a communication, but when we talk about communication in an esport, a lot of times we're we're just sort of mean, like okay, everybody knows they're all going for the same objective. But the kind of communication we were seeing from these top teams was almost uncanny as a player to watch. I mean, it would it would be awesome if I spoke the languages they were speaking and could hear what they were saying and know whether or not this was literal communication or whether this was just these folks had played so much. Because things like, like we saw a lot of Sona play in, in this whole round, which is not something, you know, at my low ELO level, I don't see a lot of Sona play because Sona is only really effective if she's on a really good team. And if she's in a really good team, she just wins a team fight because a crescendo with the right time can just completely decimate a, an, an opponent. And to watch the, the positioning of these teams, for instance, when Sona was in one of these team fights, exactly where she would be before she tossed down a crescendo and exactly how she would manage to catch often all five of the enemy in one crescendo wave. I, I've just literally never seen that before. And it all has to do with that kind of uh, almost uncanny positioning in the team fight moment. And when you listen to the communication that a lot of the American teams have in those sort of high stress, high intensity moments, what you actually hear is a lot of get him, get him, get him, get him, you know, or target calling, like, you know, you know, Jace, 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 or something like that. But you don't actually hear a lot of tactical positioning commentary. At least that was my percents. Well, that's actually like a, a really good point is uh, the way the teams are structured, they're structured differently. For different regions, like, you know, in the American ones, you'll hear everyone making calls. I know that, like, with TSM, uh, Reginald is kind of their team leader. He makes their strategy calls, but they still have a lot of people talking at once. But uh, I believe it's Taipei Assassins and Azubu Frost. Both of them have their supports as the only person speaking. Just like how Moscow 5, they have Alex each, their mid. He makes right. all their calls. And it's just it's just a different experience. And when you hear them, yeah, they're excited. They're playing at the championship. So, yeah, they do speak a little more than they would usually. But there's still a very solid line of he is making every call. And they've played together so much. And when you actually see the fights break out, the level of micro is absolutely insane. Oh, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, literally, the number of times I saw Sona pick up five people. It's like I've seen Sona pick up two people maybe twice in my entire life playing league of legends and yet almost every time sona was meaningful in a fight in, in the in the whole championship from the very beginning to the finals she was picking up four or five which i just can't even imagine being that precise yeah she she's lining it perfectly i was consistently amazed too at the at the lack of overkill from any of like the top teams like the fact that like they would bring everybody down just enough to like let uh a, you know Carthus get a quadra kill and, and just let or that how they know an ignite is about to expire so they shouldn't chase further they know that yeah, exact exactly. second that last tick and they're not going to mess it up so they're always like because you'll even hear the announcers they'll be like is it going to kill him is it going to kill him and you can already see that person backing off so you have your answer they know it's going right. to kill him the pro players timed it perfectly yeah, they have such an incredible hive mind when you get to a lot of the Asian teams that it just works as cohesion. You mentioned before um, somebody calling out things, uh, calling out uh, targets. I think it's um, Froggen for uh, CLGNA. I think that uh, last time I saw him uh, playing in the tournament when they were actually showing the whole thing, he kept on shouting out who was to do it, and everyone else was like, yeah, go, go, yeah. yeah. Just very, very mute, but th it was just him going, go, 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 go. So, yeah, it's just the, the level of hive mind uh, thought process behind all of them is just unbelievable. Um, Taipei Assassins really like took it home on that one. 
I, I think the other thing that struck me so much was, uh, you know, cert- even even just watching, I'm, I'm certainly not a player who's playing at the ELS level that I can see this in my own games, but watching a lot of the, you know, scrim matches and stuff that gets posted on, you know, webs and people casting their own games, um, the level of map control that we saw from all of the teams in this, but particularly the Asian teams, I thought was astounding down to, for instance, you know, a, a, a completely un, you know, unopposed lane having a, a creep wave taken out, say, by an across the map Ezreal blast, right? That and, and have those having those things be so perfectly timed that they were actually exerting map control all the way across the map by the effective use of an ultimate was the kind of stuff that I think is is just showing that League of Legends is a game that has evolved to a point where the strategy can really far exceed the capacity of the average player. And I think that's one of the interesting things here is we're seeing it's not just about actions per second, right? It's about... Uh, you know, it's not just about clicking faster or having a slightly better, you know, hand-eye coordination. It's about actually thinking about the game differently than the casual player would. Much like in chess, you know, the average chess player is thinking two moves ahead instead of thinking seven moves ahead. Yeah, uh, that's actually one of the things that Riot's gotten a lot better about because, I mean, as the game has gone on, everyone has, of course, complained about balance and how one tournament, one champion will be the blue one to go to, and then the next one you move over to the next uh, champion, and then it's always flavor of the month, and there's a lot of uh, recurring characters like Shen ever since his rework. He's just been picked or banned every single time. But like, um, like what you were saying about how it's gotten so where all of the individual strategy moments, they're thinking about the entire thing. I remember that with... Um, uh, the second game of the World Finals, the first thing that happened was a Nidalee ban right after a Zubafrost won. Uh, and I, everyone was like, Nidalee ban? Okay. And I was like, well, of course they need to ban Nidalee. If they don't, they're going to do the exact same thing uh, Taipei Assassin's did against M5, which is they're going to use Nidalee's uh, constant split-pushing power and just completely crush the lane and be an immense pain in the ass. And you're never going to get rid of her, so they need to get her out of the way as fast as possible. And then they didn't even ban her after that because they didn't need to because there were so many other problems popping up. And the strategy, I mean, Taipei Assassins just controlled that game through the whole way because they were just like, look, from Champion Select, we can already control how the game is going to be played. And from there... I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask you, Rhea and Julian, um, because you know you're you're coming at this from a much more dedicated perspective than Rob and I, who are I think more generalists and sort of all kinds of different strategy games. You know, one of the things that I think about League of Legends is um, the drafting mechanic seems to me to be such a dominant part of the meta game versus a lot of other esports that are out there. Do you do you think that that's being effectively used, and do you think that the average viewer is getting much insight into what's going on in that drafting part of the game? I, I think that the, you can actually win at champion select a lot of times. I think that that's really like a core part of the game a lot of people don't really see. And a lot of people who play more casually might not see it either. Um, it, it's one of those things where there's a lot of team comps, and I believe like TSM, when they, you know, this is kind of how they became the top NA team, they had very selective comps they would play. They would pick uh, Karthus and then a Kennen top, and then they'd pick an Ash. And they do that comp, so you would Ash Arrow somebody into Karthus's Defile, into Kennen's AoE, and it'd be a guarantee one to two to three kills. And it's very much like a team comp, and if people don't react right, or if they can't see them starting to pick it by grabbing their first pick, then they're just going to have a bad time, because if you let them get certain champions, it's over. 
And you'll see that a lot. And I thought that was kind of something interesting at the World Championships was just seeing different team comps. Like that Nidalee being so disruptive, I didn't personally know that Nidalee was really that strong. I knew that she could go well against Jace, who's very flavor of the month in OP, but I didn't realize how she really could be so disruptive in team fights. And so I think you saw a lot of different comps that people didn't know how to react to, you know? Yeah, not to mention the fact that the, they actually bought a Ginsu's Rage Blade, which I was like, wait, people remember what that ability is, what that item is? I, I never would have seen it on a tournament level in my entire wildest dreams. But yeah, I mean, like, I completely agree yeah, with Rhea. Yeah, build it was really crazy. Basic. Like, it was, it was one of the weirdest builds I think I've ever seen. Like, I don't even remember the rest of the items, but you don't build Nidalee that way. There's no guides on the internet that will tell you to build her that way. So it was really <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, you... It was completely ridiculous. Like, I'm looking at it and like, what exactly is he doing? And then they won. And I'm like, well, all right. I guess I really can't complain with the results. But, like, um, yeah, com- Rhea's completely right. Because, like, in Champion Select, you can start to see the way things are going to go. Obviously, in Solo Queue, it's going to be a little different because there's not targeted bans. Like, if you ever have anybody fighting um, uh, CLG North America, they want, or uh, CLG Europe, they're going to get rid of uh, Anivia because Froggen is completely terrifying with Anivia. But then, meanwhile, in solo queue, they're going to just ban out a lot of problematic champions, like Jace, because he just wins his lane no matter what happens. Um, Shen, because of the split pushing in the global ult. Uh, Ali, because Alistair can either jungle or support, and he's a monster either way. Um, and then no, there's he's also... bad now. Sorry, got to interject. Well, he's bad now. <laughs> fair enough. He did get pretty badly nerfed. Um, but this is the bans I've been used to for however long now. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, you're going to get that a lot in solo queue, where they want to eliminate the champions they just don't want to deal with. Whereas, meanwhile, um, you go to uh, the tournament level, and they're going to ban out whatever they can to try and either manipulate the picks or force out champions that the other team doesn't want to get you let you get a hold of. Like, uh, you saw, for example, they would pick out Orianna because uh, they didn't want toys to get a hold of him on uh, Taipei Assassins. And they also picked out um, Shen a lot, too. And if they didn't pick Shen... Uh, or if they didn't ban Shen, they picked him, and then they usually try to go for a Protect the Kog'Maw team right. comp, where you have, like, Orianna mid, Shen top, and then just everybody shield and buff the hell out of uh, Kog'Maw and let him blend the entire team in a putty. I mean, champion select is so critical. I think there was a game where they uh, were banning out Karthus after they saw Froggen on Karthus, because that was the only reason why CLG was able to get an- another game, was because Froggen kept ulting while they were pulling off their crazy tower dives. So he would mm-hmm. get fed... I think it was uh, was CLG versus Azubu Frost. Was that what it was? Or were they Taipei? No, they weren't Taipei. So it was CLG versus it wasn't Azubu Frost. And they actually had to react and ban out his Karthus because he was getting um, assists and he was also getting kills. And he was turning around their crazy tower dives and keeping them in the game. So Karthus's ulti was just incredibly strong because he kept getting all the kills. Even though he technically shouldn't have, because he's just sitting there in mid, chilling, farming, and, you know, they're trying to pull off this crazy four-man tower dive, and Karthus, you know, gets two kills out of it, so it ends up equal. They didn't actually lose that much, even though they should have lost a lot by getting dove like that. Yeah, uh, that was the reason for you had the nerf to uh, Shen and uh, Karthus' ultimate. They increased the range timers, because the global presence is just so ridiculously strong. But but a lot of these things we're talking about require this kind of communication, even in team select, right? Because you can't just sit there and say, "Well, I'm going to pick Nidalee. And and if you're like if you're in solo queue and you jump in and you you know you're typing as fast as you can during team select and saying, "Well, I want to play Nidalee. I'm going to play her this way," you know the chances that you're actually going to get a team comp that's going to support the way you would play that sort of the way these guys are playing at the tournament level is infinitesimally small. And then add to the fact that. 
you're generally not going to have voice comms with this. I, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about today was sort of the distinction between what's going on in the even high-level casual game, just meaning guys who just show up and play the game, um, versus what's going on at the, the sort of league level, meaning folks that are playing as a five-man all the time, even if they're, they're you know, they may be playing five-man queue, but they're playing all the time together. The, the distinguishing factor to me seems to be voice. I mean, do you feel like it's been a mistake for Riot not to address the fact that the that voice lives outside the game? I mean, voice is not a part of this game. It's not part of the build. I thought that they were going to add that recently. Like, I, I believe there was actually a Riot post on Reddit a couple days ago, I think, about looking for that for season three. Well, I mean, that'd be great if they do it, but here we are. This game is six years old and growing phenomenally. And the, I don't me, think it's the most six. Fun- I think it's like four. I think it's four. Yeah. Is it four? I mean, I I was back in beta, so it seems like it's been forever for me. But the it it just seems weird to me that this is a game which, to me, is fundamentally about team communication that wasn't built with voice from the ground up. I mean, does that not seem weird to anybody else? It's very weird. I mean, I I don't play Dota 2 that much, but just seeing the voice chat there is completely different, and it makes the game... like it, I don't know, I've never been trolled in Dota 2 with the voice chat. I think that was their initial concern, was that people would start being trolled all the time. But it's there's times where pings don't work. Like, I will ping to go on the you know AD carry, and someone will be sitting there attacking the jungler, and they're not looking at the ping, because they didn't get that's what I meant. They might have thought I was just pinging for fun, you know? Well, and, and the pings can mean so many different things. I mean, you have two, t- two kinds of pings you can drop down. None of them say, hey, everybody, let's get mid and then go to dragon right after that. And then let's make sure we check on bottom. I mean, you can't you can only do so much with a ping, you know? Yeah, the lack of a voice chat definitely is hurting League of Legends. But I mean, it's also one of the things that everyone's gotten so used to. I don't think anybody even thinks about it anymore. Now it's just gotten to be like, oh, well, I'm going to play on Skype with the people that I know or I'm not. Or I'm just going to go into solo queue or or whichever it is. I mean, if, if Riot does add it in, and I think they should, it would definitely be a benefit. I mean, it would take a little while for the community to adjust and start hitting that mute button a little faster, but I think it can only <laughs> work better for them. Uh, just to return to uh, to, to the, the picks and bans phase uh, for a moment, because I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, actual final series between Taipei Assassins and Azubu Frost and talk in particular about kind of what we saw Stanley uh, do in that series and how that ended up influencing the, the picks and bans. Because what, what I found really intriguing is that in, in the longer format uh, of, the, of the final series, it was a, it was a best of five, right? Uh, not, mm-hmm. The rest were best of threes, and this was best of five. It, it seemed like you, you in that last series, you had a, a lot more chances for, uh, you know, for, for the series to sort of create its own sort of metagame, where now the picks were becoming, as these two teams like figured each other out a bit more, the picks themselves started to, uh, at least to me, it sort of seemed like they were they were carrying over some of the momentum from the previous match into the next one because now now the picks phase wasn't just like here's what we you know know about this guy and and here's kind of you know here are the champions we don't want to play against now it was okay that happened last game we never want to see that for the rest of the night so yeah, for sure yeah, yeah. and, and so much. it sort of seemed by the end there like uh, Azubu Frost's uh, bands were were basically uh, you know desperately trying to get shy back in the game so I, I don't know I, I kind of wanted to I, I kind of wanted to ask you guys about 
what happened with with Stanley in that last series and how he beat Shy? Because, you know, you, you started out by saying that you know Zuby Frost had the, had the, the, these outstanding team fight abilities, and in their in their first game in the championship, uh, Taipei Assassins blew a lead because they were simply getting uh, you know blown away in the team fights, and then they and then they basically went into like full bully mode uh, in, in the lanes, and something that I hadn't seen happen all tournament. Uh, happened between uh, Stanley and Zuberfrost's Shy, where Stanley just completely shut him down and made him a non-entity. And this was a guy that no other team seemed to be able to answer. Uh, and I'm just curious, how did that? How did that play out? Like, like what did what did Taipei Assassins do uh, in its in its championship series to shut down Zuberfrost that other teams hadn't been able to figure out? The only thing that I really remember out of the tournament was um, <clears throat> when I watched the one, I don't remember which one it was, but it was when, because uh, I wasn't paying too much attention to top lane because so much was going on with the junglers and mid and bottom right. lane. So it was hard for me to keep track of that. But one thing I do remember, they sent Shen up top uh, as um, uh, Stanley and Shy was Jax. And the big thing about Jax is you don't let him farm because if he gets all the items he needs, he's going to come into a team fight and he, you're just not going to be able to win. But the thing about Shen is he also has that benefit with all the, the fact that he's basically going to become invincible or invincible. So, like, when it got to one point, I remember that the two of them were basically just farming and trying to get kills, but neither of them really got anywhere. And then there was just one fight, one versus one, where Shai thought he could beat him. And out of nowhere, he's suddenly at half health and Shen is still, like, almost at full. And he's all, um, this did not work out like I planned. And it's just like, I feel like, um, with Shy and Stanley, it's almost like Stanley was able to farm up enough and just keep safe and try and keep putting the pressure on, but he wanted to make himself more of a threat late game than uh, Shy would become. And Shy, of course, is a ridiculously good top lane. I mean, I saw him take Singe to the tournament as a counterpick, uh, which I did not expect. I never, ever would have expected Singe to make it to a tournament. Um, and he also beat... Um, uh, CLG Europe with the exact same strategy. I remember there was one time where he just kept on farming as shy in top lane as a singed, and they couldn't do anything about it because you can't gank him and you can't kill him. I didn't pay attention enough to really be able to say for certain, but it really seemed like he was just a matter of making himself more of a threat late game than shy would become and not letting him have a mid game. Uh, I know that with Shen's teleport, he could basically appear anywhere in the game and then uh, shy would have to actually follow up with it by just walking there. Most of the time, a lot of the pressure was kept on uh, mid and bot lane because that's where Dragon is, and it seemed like they really wanted to get all the other lanes more fed than Shy. But I mean, feel free to, or then, uh, uh, then, uh, or yeah, Shy, sorry. Feel free to stop me if I'm wrong here. That was only what I observed. I couldn't really speak for certain because so much was going on with the mid lane. I mean, toys, uh, like, every single time you picked up a champion, they were like, oh, God, I didn't want him to have that one. But they ran out of bands. So I was focusing so much on mid. Um, I mean, the thing, a lot of times when you're watching this as a, as a spectator, right, a lot of the focus will be on junglers and because that tends to lead to objectives and ganks, which makes for more interesting stuff to watch and on the mid lane, right, which is where you're seeing that traditional carry battle happen. And I thought what was interesting about the sort of shivy Stanley stuff that we saw is these are two guys who were some of the best farmers in the game. Um, and, and a lot of what would happen there were these sort of really interesting zone control battles. And we, and I, I was a little sad. We didn't actually get to see more of it because as a player who's trying to get better at the game, learning how to zone people out while they're farming is actually really critical just as a, as a core. It, it really skill. Is. <laughs> and, and clearly what happened there was 
you know, the, you, you sort of had that battle of wills. It's not as necessarily interesting to watch as the battle that's going on for map control or global objectives, but that battle of zone control and top lane is probably actually more relevant to what most individual players are getting faced with on solo queue all the time. I think it was really interesting seeing, like, top lane fight because there were a lot of times where you'd think a lane would be over two. Uh, I, I think it was the first game... It was uh, Aurelia versus Olaf. And I remember thinking that it was just completely over because I think Olaf got killed early on. And they'd, they'd swapped down to bot lane. I believe the top lane where, you know, they were soloing bot together. And I remember it, it felt like it was over. There was an early kill on um, Stanley. But then he just completely came back because the jungler camped his lane and the team knew how to re. So it was kind of interesting to see that, like, because in solo queue, a lot of the time, top lane really is an island. It's, you're there. Uh, it it kind of seems to work like this. The enemy jungler is always going to gank you and camp you, and your jungler will never help you out. Like, that's top lane in solo queue at any elo. And so it's kind of just this miserable experience sometimes. And there I just saw, like, the lanes being completely defined by them knowing when to go in, but on top of it, their team helping them out and knowing the right time to collapse. And I remember it was, like, this killer play where... Olaf goes in, Aurelia kind of baits Aurelia, Aurelia is going in on him, and out of nowhere, Maokai comes and shows up, Olaf lives, Karthus hits his ulti, and Olaf hits his ulti, Ragnarok, to get a little more resistance to live through Karthus's ulti, and survives with, like, no HP and recalls. So it was like, there's some really intense fights. Yeah, and those were all just, like, you know what I mean? It was just, like, this solo, this lane that's usually solo top, where they do this dance of zoning each other and last hitting perfectly. We were seeing it A be put in bot lane, and then we were seeing it B the teammates really like collapsing and defining all of that because obviously the gank on Aurelia is what caused that, but then Karthus almost redeemed it. And you know, it's just it was just pretty crazy, honestly. It was very different from what you'd see in solo queue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with regard to like top lane, like um Riot's even talking about this in big changes for season three, but top lane really is an island. Like you're up there on your own, and if you don't win, well, you better hope the jungler's got his free time on his hands, because that's about all he can do after that point. I mean, um, it's gotten really bad in Riot's trying to fixing it, and that's one of the interesting things, is because seeing somebody actually come back in a one-versus-one environment of top lane without any jungler help, or with jungler help, in both instances, it's kind of like, how exactly did that happen? And um, I know that, in particular, if a really bad champion gets a hold of it, like Riven, if Riven gets an advantage, it's just it, it becomes an absolute nightmare. Unless you get somebody with a lot of harass or a really, really strong jungler for ganks like Maokai, it's just going to get a hold of harder to be able to stop her because she can engage well, she can disengage well, and she's tough as nails. But but I think that's another thing that we saw a ton of in this competition, not so much in those last five games, um, but, but certainly in the quarterfinals, we saw a ton of really impressive flexibility. Um, in terms of lane swapping, in terms of abandoning the laning phase extremely early, um, we, we saw a lot of those earlier games become these really interesting games of pacing where you had one team fighting to sort of abandon the laning phase by, say, fifth level and another team wanting to really extend this game into sort of more normal 45 minute type format. Um, and, 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 you know, as part of that, you'd see somebody who was getting zoned out in top swap in for the jungler and actually start jungling instead, you know, by lane, by level five or seven, uh, you know, I, that kind of flexibility is just, again, not something you see in casual play, but in a lot of cases really rescued teams from what looked like unwinnable games. 
Mm-hmm. There was also a lot of um, the new meta that's been popping up a lot just in solo queue. I mean, people have been doing lane swaps now. It's two versus ones on all the lanes, and then they swap back whenever they're done. Um, I just did it today because we had uh, Jace at top, and it's like, all right, well, we've got Darius who got counterpicked, so we'll stick Darius at bottom. He's just going to hang out there for a little bit, and then we'll have two versus one at top. Jace gets level six, Darius gets level six, we'll switch him right back, and suddenly Darius can take him now. And, I mean, it's popping up more and more, and... I think it's really fascinating because I never would have predicted this would have happened after the tournament, and I'd be that okay with it. <laughs> well, there was also some crazy picks that were based solely on hoping to do that. Like I remember, uh, it was I think it was game one, Taipei Assassins and Azubu, and then I think it happened again, but it was the it was the Vein and uh, the Vein and Lulu pick, and yeah, they were Vayne going Lulu, against actually. they were going against Ezreal and Sona. And Ezreal and Sona is just a powerhouse of a lane. It is just extremely strong, high poke, and high kill potential. And Vayne has one of the worst laning phases in the game. And Lulu is a support that's actually got the lowest win rate on our site. Like on Law King and Solo Queue, she's got the lowest win rate as a support besides Karma, who doesn't count and exist. But uh, mm-hmm. it, it was very interesting to see them actually, they were picking that, knowing they were picking themselves into a counter pick, but hoping to just, you know, swap lanes a lot. And oddly enough, it didn't end up happening because, you know, Azubu countered by saying, we know you're going to do that, so we're going to come up and, you know, chill with you too while you lane swap. But they ended up winning the lane anyway, which was quite bizarre, but that's another story, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did the uh, same thing in a similar game, and then they let them, which meant that Vayne and the others got to free farm, and then they swapped back, and Vayne is level 6 with free farm. It doesn't matter what the AD carry has, that's going to be a nightmare for anybody. Well, wasn't there a game, too, where uh, it was one of the Karthus games, where they tried to lane swap, too, by having the mid go bot? And I remember that actually gave Toys a huge advantage, because he didn't go bot. So when yeah, he came that back, actually was. Uh, it, it was the second game, I believe, and I believe it was Toys on Anivia versus uh Karthus. And I remember like Karthus was. was bought for some reason and when he came back up he just couldn't lane against Anivia. He had missed Yeah, because Anivia had been farming so much, yeah. That was that was I thought that was a really strange choice, but it didn't work out very well for him. I wanted to make sure we spent some time talking about the state of the game for the non-pro players. I mean, I, I, I get a feeling that certainly, you know, <laughs> we could spend a lot of time just talking about these games and the shifting metagame and um, individual moments. And I, and I think to some extent that's a sign that the esports world has kind of arrived because uh, I, I mean, I literally can sit here for two or three hours chatting with somebody about one game of League of Legends that took 35 minutes, which, which I think is yeah, a big exactly. sign. <laughs> Um, but, but Rhea, you posted something on Twitter this week, which I thought was great, which was a link to a, a podcast that I actually don't even know which podcast it was, but it was four guys talking about sort of the state of League of Legends versus StarCraft. And I don't want to get into that argument because that's a little bit like having World of Warcraft arguments or something like that. But one of the points that one of those podcasters was making, which I thought was very valid, which is that in order to have a valid and viable esport that's going to have prize money people care about and therefore elevate the level of professional play to the level where people find it interesting to watch, you need to have this enormous casual base because that casual base is the one the advertisers want to get to. And ultimately, that's where all the money comes from. Um, and, and so, you know, to some extent, the success of League of Legends is not just the fact that it's a great game at the pro level in terms of having a complex meta and a lot of different strategies that make it interesting to watch. But because it's accessible enough for idiots like me to actually jump into solo queue and have a good time and, and actually learn the game well enough to find it enjoyable. Right. And and just like I'm never going to jump into a chess championship, um, I'm not necessarily ever going to jump into a StarCraft 
championship because I'm just never going to get there enough, but I can easily kill an entire day playing League of Legends. And I wanted to just kick this idea around of how Riot is managing the game and whether they can continue to manage the game to keep it both acceptable and accessible to the sort of lower level player who's either just learning or has just started playing ranked games uh, and, and doesn't want to get just dwarfed by skill levels he can't possibly hope to achieve versus still keeping the game balanced and interesting enough at the pro level that guys like us can watch it. Well, I think that one of the, one of the ways that they ended up doing this, especially like um, Riot's been really, really attentive about that sort of thing, is that uh, I noticed that somebody said earlier, uh, I don't remember who it was, but they were like, uh, the the key difference between League of Legends and Dota is League of Legends uh, wants to know what the player base thinks, and Ice Frog couldn't give less of a crap. I thought that was kind of funny. I don't know for certain, but I feel that it is very expressive of the way that they take things, because like, uh, League of Legends listens to feedback and knows what people like and don't like and tries to make it more fun. They try to avoid uh, toxic behavior in gameplay and player's base. And uh, one of the ways that I can think of is original Evelyn. Uh, Marilla's even said before, it's like the reason that we got rid of old Evelyn's stun is because it was making people quit the game. Like, they would start playing, they'd land against Evelyn, uh, or they'd be playing against an Evelyn ch- character, the player would know what they were doing, they would get stunned out of nowhere, and they'd get really angry and quit. And they're like, I don't want to play this game anymore. And they're like, well, we can't have that as a game if we're going to be profitable, so we need to undo that somehow. I think they're really good about it, but I mean, I think at this point, uh, I'm waiting for something in League of Legends and Riot to go wrong. I have no idea what. It could just be the passage of time. I think eventually well, game, every well, game has to go out. Let's be clear, plenty, plenty went wrong in the semifinals. <laughs> oh, well, if besides that... I, th- I think there was enough going wrong at the at the semifinals or uh, at the playoffs, definitely. But I mean, like, I feel like there's something like Riot's been doing so well and so much is going on. I'm just kind of like, okay, there's going to be something horrible catastrophe. I think it's just like I just get a bad feeling with how well League of Legends is doing. But I mean, I think if anything, they just nothing will stop them except for just the flow of time because I don't know how long a an individual game can last itself longer than like five years. Well, I mean, I look how, how long the Brood War last. I mean, like, yeah, exactly. That's, I, I don't think I, I think they're in a pretty strong position as far as longevity goes, just because there are so many ways to sort of renew this game, and and I kind of feel like one benefit that they get from well, you guys would be a better place to answer this actually, but it certainly seems to me like people when I watch esports, I, I I see things and maybe I haven't seen them before, but I see that and I'm like, oh, I I, I never thought of that, and then. I end up trying some version of it, you know, some bastardized version of it the next time I'm I'm playing the game, uh, multiplayer. But it kind of feels like esports can sort of spur on these changes and, and the, you know, the, this sort of evolution uh, for, you know, for the community at large uh, that... You know, you know, if you've got a via, if you've got a a, a viable esports community, it, it sort of seems like there's going to be a lot more dynamism in the game that'll keep people, uh, you know, sort of glued to it. Well, you could look at like a just even World of Warcraft for that. I mean, so long as you keep on changing the core game and keep on adding more stuff to keep people interested, it's a fascinating thing to watch. I mean, I still have read occasional patch notes for World of Warcraft, and I haven't played that game in years. I, I want to know what's going on in there. Well, it's it's like it's there's timelines though, and I feel like not to go off on a tangent about WoW or something, but just because I have a lot of experience with it, I feel like WoW has a natural shelf life. But when I look at a game like 
uh, League of Legends, it doesn't have a shelf life. And it's very, it's very interesting to me. I don't see that. Like I see with WoW, they keep reinvigorating it, but it has its obvious uh, slowdowns and subscription loss, and then it comes back. You know, it, it's not going to last forever. But when you look at League of Legends, it's like it, it, it can keep, there's just infinite champions they can keep adding. They can keep rebalancing it. They can add new maps. They can add new modes. And it's very likely that people won't actually get sick of it until they've played so much of it. Like, it's it, it's just nothing like, it's, there's no story to tell. There's no, it's it's all about how it's really like a game of chess. And as you progress up the ladder, you just you just keep expanding endlessly. The amount of knowledge you gain is just tremendous. And so it's so addictive in that degree because there's always another tier for you to reach as a player. But do you think that there's a disconnect between what's going on in the pro community and what's going on in the casual community? Because, like, I look at what the, like, proposed nerfs are coming out of Season 2 on the public beta servers, right? And they're all very clearly reactions to things that were dominant on the pro circuit, which, let's be honest, for 99% of law players are never even going to come up because they're generally happening with with champions that have such a high skill cap that that you're never getting to the point where you could be abusing them as a casual player. And I, I don't so know if I, I agree with that. I think, I think like yeah, the, pro, I actually don't agree. the pro imbalances like trickle down because like when I see like, for example, Sivir was really strong and she was played at all the tournaments back like I am. And so on, like I want to say six to eight months ago and they were like trickling down and Sivir was so OP. She started to be used at low level casual play everywhere too. And she was basically a free win. And it wasn't that she was that broken. It was just that her numbers were a little tweaked and she had a spell shield that gave her immunity. So even someone that wasn't that great could hit it and block something amazing, you know? And so it kind of became a snowball thing. So I feel like in a way the pro community and these bands and these nerfs, they'll trickle down. Like, if you don't nerf Ezreal now, how many people that have only played, you know, 50 games are just playing Ezreal? A lot of people are, just because it's been, it's trickled down. So when they're, like, addressing it at the top tier, I feel it benefits the community overall because they're addressing the problem that's starting it. They're kind of cutting off an infection before it spreads, in a way. Okay. Yeah, and I agree with that, too, because, like, um, it's not just the pro community that constantly picked Ezreal. I mean, what happened was the meta shifted a little bit, and suddenly um, a lot of the all-in initiation that would cause problems required something like an escape. So you have Ezreal, you've got Graves, you've got Corky, um, who are the three of the best carries. And, of course, Pulsefire Ezreal just made him popular as all hell. But he still has some of the highest win rates on the game right now, just based on how many... He's picked more than uh, every other, like, uh, AD carry by, like, a factor of at least two. And he still has some of the highest win rates. So something is very clearly broken there. And Riot's like, okay, we need to do something about him because he has escapes, he can trade, uh, his wave allows him to reduce attack speeds, increase his own attack speed, and that of anybody who's near him. He's got a global ult. He works off of AP and AD ratios, meaning if anybody has a will of ancients or a buff, something like that, or maybe just a passive from the mastery that uh, whenever your ignite's down, you get 5 AP. All of those things benefit him. So Riot's just like, okay, we have to do something about him. And I mean, like, uh, Jace, right now, after the Yorick nerf, everyone's like, well, who am I going to play top that's just going to win? And they picked up Jace. I mean, no matter what you do, you really can't stop a Jace unless your jungler basically completely screws him over. He has the 8% uh, like of max of uh, current health on the disengage. Um, he's got range attack and melee. Uh, he gains mana back whenever he does basic attacks with his hammer form. Like, there's no way to dislodge him other than just completely messing him over with the jungler. A lot of the uh, bands that, uh, a lot of the nerfs that end up happening are just reflective of the game as a whole, and the pro community is just like the most concentrated distilled version. That's a really good way of saying it. 
So you'd argue that having this sort of vibrant pro community helps balance the game sooner and faster. Because, I mean, the interesting thing is you look at the kind of nerfs that have come out, and they're not, like, they're not enormous. They actually do seem like tweaks. Like, I mean, they didn't, like, change how Jace works. They, like, changed Gates' mana cost, right, to 20 points more. I mean, they're... They yeah, are, and I think they also took th- off the percentage of life, too. Yeah, but I mean they've they've they're not like completely reworking a character because they're broken. They're just making them cost a little bit more. Like the Sona nerfs, right? They just made her a little squishier. They didn't change actually anything she does. She has the they health of a, mi- a minion now. That's how that's yeah. how much health. She's got the health of a minion. There was a Reddit post about that and I was like, that really yeah. sucks for Sona. Yeah, but 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 I guess I guess my point is like because like Sona is a character that I play, um, you know, it, at, at you know my pathetic level, and and from my perspective, I had a hard enough time keeping Sona in the game in solo queue because half the time I didn't have a team that wanted to work with me. So now she's become almost unplayable for somebody at my skill level, which is just sort of I mean it, that's fine, but it's just it's an interesting dynamic where. You know, the fact that a character like a champ like Sona can be, you know, dominant on a really good team changes how I'm going to be able to use her at the solo level. It's an interesting dynamic. I think Sona is a a much rarer case, though, because I think like with Sona, she's very squishy and she has certain lanes and there's the bot lane has certain things about it. Like Sona is you could actually face roll your value to victory, I think, at any level with her if you got the right bot lane. And that's, I mean, that's a completely kind of different topic, but I feel like that's kind of what they're addressing. Like, they're obviously addressing the pro players, but at the same time, if you had a Sona and you picked her into a Sorak or something, as long as they didn't have a Blitzcrank, Leona, or Tarek, it, she would dominate the lane. And I think they're trying to address the fact that she really can dominate a lane as long as in certain situations, and she shouldn't be able to dominate that much. Yeah, and in particular, too, like, a champion's potential, I feel, is way more of a threat than um, just the average way that they're played. Like... Um, I know I heard about one thing where it was like, uh, like I think it was Shen, or no, Twisted Fate, like there's apparently a new bug where if you use Ionic Spark and you time it so the gold card you throw hits the Ionic Spark proc, it actually does a splash stun. Like, something as goofy as that even still would need to get tweaked within the game just to be able to... Uh, make sure that it doesn't get abused. Even though it's a very situational like sort of build, there are a lot of ways that that could get abused. Just an, an example. So there, there was one thing coming out of uh, the the tournament that they're that they're talking about uh, changing for season three, and actually they brought it up at the uh, at the team press conference immediately after the championships, and that is uh, the problem with jungling. Uh, and I, and I, and I want to say that uh, TPA's jungler uh, made the point that uh, the jungler no longer controls the jungle. Really, that the jungle has become sort of controlled via via laning. Uh, and and so that that's sort of become a focus for uh, you know sort of sort of changing changing the game for next season. And now when when you start talking about something like reworking the jungle uh, in in a Dota style game like this, uh, you know these, these are some you know those are some major changes. And I, and I'm curious, you know how you know what's kind of gone wrong with the jungle uh, and. How can how can Riot sort of address the issue? Uh, well, from what I remember, um, they were already talking about the ways they were going to fix it, but I think that one thing that's really reflective of the ways that it went wrong is if you look at the jungle right now, and then you look at the jungle uh, back when the game like was first uh, when they first reworked the jungle. Like um, before then, you could pick someone like Warwick, and they were a good jungler. 
you could pick somebody like um, Jin Zhao, and they were a good jungler. Fiddlesticks. Fiddlesticks. Yeah, Fiddlesticks. Fiddlesticks was a really good... Fiddlesticks was a really good jungler back then. And then you look at it today, and the type of junglers that thrive off of it are a completely different set of people. Like, of course, Nautilus, but I mean... Uh, then there's also the ones that do a lot of area of effect damage. There's also the ones that uh, have a lot of lane control. Um, there's also or, or a lot of uh, f- frantic gankers, or the ones like Ali who just have buckets of CC. Like, um, you're either going to go two different directions. You're either going to go uh, with a jungler that is able to sustain himself enough, like Udir, to be able to just uh, tear through the jungle with Phoenix Stance and do a lot of area of effect damage, or you're going to get someone like... Um, Amumu, who's going to get two GP5, and if you haven't killed him in, uh, until he gets level 6, you're probably going to lose. And there really isn't much of a variant beyond that. You either need to clear with huge area of effects and be able to uh, be tough enough to sustain, like Nautilus. And I mean, Nautilus even gets gold per 5. And it just kind of has completely rendered Fiddlesticks and Warwick and everybody else invalid. Like, they can't really do anything anymore. Fiddlesticks is such a fragile jungle, and on top of that, his late game is really rewarding. But you can counter-jungle him. Just, like, go in and take his blue, and if he doesn't get one, he's not going to be in the game for 15 minutes. I mean, like, uh, one of the ways they're working on, they even said, like, uh, we're working on a new jungle and raising the difficulty of the monsters and the rewards, and they said, and somebody asked, like, oh, does that mean it's going to become, uh, like the old Season 1 jungle? And they're like, no, 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 somewhere in between. And someone's like, well, does that mean Fiddlesticks and Warwick are coming back? And, uh, I think it was Morello was like, actually, they really like the new jungle, from what I've said, talked to them about, and I was like, I'm in favor of it, because right now Warwick is just completely useless. I mean, I love him. He's, like, one of my favorite characters. He's one of my first characters, but he can't top lane very well anymore because he's been too nerfed, and he can't jungle anymore because he just can't do the job as well as everyone else can. He uh, he brings in that really nice uh, ult, but, I mean, other than uh, that and his sustain, I've run him mid lane just to deal with problem champions like Swain before, and it actually works, but it's not really viable. It's just kind of a goofy offbeat thing that nobody really knows you can do. I don't know, I, I'm worried about it because I feel like when they redid the jungle, that was the time I really started playing this game, and everything was just getting reinvented. Like, I remember it, it was really like the Wild wild West, like you could do anything. And you see this, you saw, I think it was I Am Hanover, uh, M5 pulled out Shivana, and they're like, this is Shivana, Shivana's going to invade your jungle, and she's going to make the jungle just a nightmare. You're not safe in your own jungle, your jungle is our jungle. And it was a completely different style. It completely threw the meta. And that was beautiful. That was so strategic, and the game needed it. So I almost feel like they're basically doing this whole new thing with, you know, a new jungle coming out. And maybe they need to do that every season. Because maybe they really need to make it less stale. Because the innovation that came out of that, seeing Shivana, seeing Dr. Mundo be invented as a jungler, just seeing all these champions, yeah, Warwick and Fiddlesticks kind of had some sad times. But at the same time, it introduced a lot of new champions in situations that never really would have been seen before. And it was just very interesting to watch it evolve and people learn as they went and kind of see competitive play evolve, you know? Well, I mean, you just said something, I think, incredibly critical, which is this idea that this is a game you can learn as you go. And I fear that for any any listener of this podcast that isn't already a League of Legends players, they may have listened to particularly the three of us 
sorry, Rob, um, nerd out on stuff about individual champ compositions and nerfs and who's OP in what situations, etc. And be like, what the fuck? I am never going to play this game. It sounds incredibly complicated. And yet, like my eight year old loves watching this game and he doesn't know 90% of what's going on, but he sees the big picture. He sees the teamwork. He sees, he understands the roles. He may not know what Dr. Mundo's alt is, but he understands what he's doing when he is where he is in a team fight. He understands his role, right? He understands what happens in top lane. He understands what a jungler does. And I'm, I'm a little worried that, that what we're all enthusiastic about, what we all been chatting about, which is it's kind of the deep nerdery of it is a little bit like talking about the individual, uh, you know, cut times of running backs in the NFL while you're losing track of what's going on at the strategic level. Uh, Does this game have an opportunity to get so micro in that sense that it becomes less accessible? I think that the beauty of League of Legends is that it's so, it's so easy. Like you just kind of explained it, you know, your kid can enjoy it. And I think that's what it is. I think that's what is so appealing about it is that every level, as you get more nuanced, it only gets better. But when you start out, it's still really enjoyable. When you're playing against those bots and all you're thinking about is, I'm playing this little girl character. Her name's Annie. Um, She's got fireballs. I need to get five of them together and I can stun somebody. What is going on? Oh my gosh, there's a bush. Like when you're playing that, it's still fun. As you start to learn things like last hitting, or as you start to learn mechanics, or you start to learn what a jungler actually is. Like, you don't usually learn that even until, you know, the late 20s in the game. But as you start to learn everything, it starts to come together like a puzzle, and you're never really alienated because every new, every part you learn, it just adds to it. It doesn't detract to it, in my opinion. You can play this game as a complete casual and have a blast, or you can analyze it to death. Do you think they're doing a good job of keeping those kinds of players involved and keeping them coming back? Because, I mean, they make the occasional tweaks to, say, the bots. Like, okay, great, now bots can pick random skins. But, you know, and every once in a while they'll add new bots into the game. But I still feel a little bit like there's not a great on-ramp for people to realize how great this game is. And say what you will about StarCraft. Um you know, it at least has this elaborate single player campaign that slowly introduces you to all the concepts of it. And, and what riot has is effectively a half hour tutorial. And if you don't get it out of that, you're hitting the internet and trying to find people to teach you how to play. Okay. Hang on. Now, now we're back. Now we're sort of back more on my turf. Uh, <laughs> because. Uh, oh, oh, Rob. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead and say something. Yeah. So so but go for, ahead and rage about your teammates, please. No no no. For for one thing I for one thing I, I am on I am on that on ramp you're describing right now because uh, I was always sort of I, I didn't really get into League of Legends uh you know in the last couple of years and and then probably uh actually, you know, in part uh being around the championship, I, I started getting more into it and I've been playing it a lot since coming back from uh LA. But you know, I, I will say that um, actually, I'm not going to rage about my teammates because you know what? Like, like I kind of go into bot games expecting people to be, you know, god awful, and a lot of them are. Um, where like even at my sort of noob level, I know that someone is just like has not grokked the fact that their character can't just like see an enemy champion and say, "Okay, I'm gonna go get him." And there's a lot of people who will die a dozen times uh, before they figure out figure that out. Uh, that they can't play that way. But what I like about League of Legends, as far as its on-ramp goes, is in some ways you, you can feel 
you feel yourself getting better. There's there's a lot of instant feedback just in like as you get better at at you know at, at farming, for instance. Uh, you can see you can see your stats starting to improve game to game. Uh, you start getting a much better sense for how to set up uh, you know to to set up ganks. Uh, you, using your character, uh, you know how to how to poke your enemies down and then close in for the kill. And so there's all, there's all these signs that yeah you, you still you still suck. I still suck. I'm playing intermediate bots for crying out loud, and like we're winning 50% of the time. It's not great at all. But game to game, I'm like this is feeling better. And actually that. In some ways, I, I don't always get that from StarCraft because in StarCraft, in, in the ladder matches, a lot of times, um, you know, it's you, you know you, you may you may be getting better, but you don't have all those all that little feedback to show you you're getting better. You know, you don't have a farm score that says, okay, you did better this time than you did last time. So I, I do think that. I do think there's a, there's a lot of things that sort of keep you uh, coming back, that, that keep me coming back uh, to League of Legends, uh, even though you know sort of this high level game that you you guys are describing is in many ways still sort of incomprehensible to me. Um, but we we've sort of been circling around that uh, video that that uh, Rhea linked uh, that that was uh, a StarCraft Two Pro Destiny, uh, I believe, who was sort of going off on the current set of StarCraft 2 and you know I, I'm not sure I don't I don't think I don't agree with him with him about a lot of the things he said but I, I do feel like StarCraft 2 does have this casual problem and honestly I think the um you know I think we say like the 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 campaign is there for casual players but I don't think that really works anymore because it has nothing to do with the competitive game and I don't think people really care as much as they did in 98 about the the saga of Jim Rayner, uh, I think casuals have much more to get out of like League of Legends than they do, you know, buying a StarCraft expansion to see, you know, what's Kerrigan up to this week. Nobody <laughs> gives a shit. I don't. I feel like um, there's a little bit of a twofold thing. Like I feel like um, StarCraft has. I honestly do like the campaign and the cinematic storytelling of Blizzard because it's Blizzard. They do an amazing job with just weaving something for you to look at that keeps you gobsmacked. I'll admit that outright. But I didn't really get into StarCraft because I'm kind of horrible at RTS games. Like, I enjoy some of them. I really like Dawn of War 2, for example. But on the average, I really don't really get into it. But I did end up at least, like, thinking about uh, StarCraft 2 just because I wanted to see what happened next. Uh, so I think there is part of that, but as like as far as building an actual like receptive community, I do feel like there is a little bit of a gap in um, the in both games. Like in League of Legends, the tutorial is ancient. It's ancient and it doesn't really tell you anything, and it kind of yells at you a lot. And on top of that, you kind of have to get thrown into it to really enjoy it. And it's not exactly something for the faint of heart, but I mean, everybody's kind of on the same level. You just go, just go in and do it, and you get there. But um. Then on the other hand, in StarCraft, it's like StarCraft is so notorious and has such a reputation. It feels like anytime you're going like, okay, I played the campaign. Do I really want to jump into that swimming pool full of sharks? Huh. Like, it's not necessarily scary because the campaign doesn't really prepare you at all for it. I mean, I had played, you know, I played Brood War and um, I ended up doing my placement matches. And I, this is when, you know, StarCraft 2 came out. And I actually placed into Platinum, and I couldn't play anymore because I wasn't really meant to be in Platinum. And I remember just getting really a lot of anxiety because it, it doesn't teach you certain basic things. Like, it won't teach you how to wall in your base. It won't 
teach you how to defend from a rush. And obviously that's stuff you learn, but it's incredibly complex stuff. And you're really just kind of in the deep end there learning how to swim. And while League of Legends does, it, does the same thing, say what you will about the community, it's a lot different when you're on a team and you might have friends in the game too that can kind of just tell you what you did wrong or they can be like, hey bro, you know, next time don't walk right into the bush. You'll just die instantly because someone's going to be sitting in there. Probably a Shaco with a billion boxes. I mean, they'll, they'll tell you little tips and you'll remember them next time. And you'll feel a little less scared because everybody playing at that level one, nine times out of ten, unless they're a smurf, they're going to be really bad too. And you're eventually going to start to find yourself getting better than some of the other people. And you're going to start getting that positive feedback. And you're going to go, I still suck, but I did better than this other guy. You know, I won my lane. Or I had a really fun game. Or my friends commented that I was starting to get good at last hitting. You know what I mean? You start to get this reception when you kind of don't get that when you're in StarCraft playing 1v1s on Lost Temple. You kind of just don't get it there. You're kind of just like, did I really improve? I mean, I clicked a little more. And I expanded yeah, better. I, that's definitely what I was. Yeah, that's definitely the same point I was trying to get to. I wanted to close out with sort of a sort of a question for all of you because you're all sort of playing. Uh, you're all playing ranked, and you're all sort of operating at the at this higher level. I'm, I'm curious whether or not you still find League of Legends uh, online play relaxing just because when i compare it to when i go into a starcraft ladder match for instance you know what you were talking about there uh, Rhea, about like ladder anxiety this is like actually a critical problem in the community actually like you'll find thread after thread about how people are like trying to beat their ladder anxiety and when i like get back into starcraft 2 you know i you know i i i come and go uh with that game but when i'm when i'm trying to play the ladder more before every match i am intensely wired i am i am amped up and then when i'm done playing ladder for the day after you know two or three games like i need to sit in a dark quiet room for a half hour and just like chill because it's this super intense competitive experience and by comparison i'm actually just sort of more chilled out when i'm playing league of legends but is that just a function of the level i'm at or is there something about league of legends that even at the higher level it still feels a bit more casual well, the pacing is a lot less frenetic, period. I mean, compared Definitely. to... I mean, <laughs> nobody talks about actions per minute in League of Legends, right? Because that's not really what it's about. I mean, it came up actually once, I think, in the commentary I was listening to in the entirety of the the whole championship, right? It's much more strategic and much less click, twitch. Um, but that being said, I think the fact that it's a team game makes a huge difference, too. I mean, I play almost exclusively... Um, with groups of folks that I know generally from the gamers, the jobs community. Um, and, and that makes it, and, and we all hop on to Skype together and, and we play, from, we're all very different levels. And so we hop into queues and we just sort of get what we get based on the level that, you know, it assumes we're all going to average out to. And because we're all playing together on the same team, you're not facing that vitriol of that idiot on the other end who was like really counting on winning this game because he can only play one game all day. And that, you know, that I think is the stress of League of Legends that you don't have in StarCraft, which is that team pressure to be like the best player on your team. And if you can mitigate that by playing with people that you know, or at least people who you kind of know, like quasi from the internet who aren't going to be assholes, um, if you get rid of that, then you can just sort of pretend everybody else on the other side is a bot and not worry about it so much. 
I think there's also the fact that, like, uh, whenever I get into League of Legends, I'm either going in there for two reasons. One, I want to practice somebody I'm not good with or blow off some steam. So frequently, I'll just go into blind pick, and the minute I go into blind pick, it feels like I'm just pulling a big lottery machine lever. Like, I just do not care about the results because I'm just going in there to try and improve. Um, or I also do it to de-stress, so I'll have, like, a whiskey sour and I'll play Teemo. Because that's how I unwind. It's just, I'm going to go to top lane, and I'm going to piss off the other guy immensely, and I'm going to feel great. And I mean, <laughs> that's just how I unwind if I really feel like doing it. But meanwhile, if I ever actually go into ranked, um, like, at first I had the anxiety because I really wanted to improve. But the problem is, um, like, in ranked, I feel like there was a problem with ELO Hell for the longest time, is the fact that when you're in, like, the uh, 1,000 to, like, 3,000 range, it's very, very hard to pull yourself up by your own skill. And not in the sense of, like, blame everybody around you, but it's this weird kind of problem where you're, like, uh, one step forward, two steps back. But the ELO system recognizes that and actually starts to push you up a little bit. Like, I have more losses than I do wins on my profile right now. I have, like, 280 ranked uh, wins, 281 losses in solo queue, just ranked. And I'm at 1229. Just it, It's just working out. So I'm just, like, at first I was really tense, but now I'm just kind of, like, I don't really see myself able to control the direction that the game goes. Like, if somebody is not going to be good on my team, they're not going to be good. And I don't know if it's really something I can advise to everybody, because if you can get higher faster, please, by all means, do it. But, I mean, that's basically what it's got become for me. I'm just like, I can't really care anymore. I just I go into solo queue, I'm going to try my hardest, but no promises. All bets are off. I, I'm going to do my best, but I can't have that level of stress in my head. I actually don't have much anxiety anymore. Um, when I play the game... A lot of it I just treat it as a learning experience, and there'll be definite games where I just rage because I get trolled, or I'll see my teams do some really stupid stuff, but a lot of it I've just learned that I want to try to better myself as a player, so when I'm playing, I just try to make the calls now. I try to tell people that if it's, you know, someone's in the jungle, um, I can usually tell them what buff they started at from the way the lanes return to their lane. And then at that point, you can kind of tell where they're going to gank. And once you start mapping it out, almost like chess, and you say they're going to make an attack here in one minute, and when they actually do that, and you tell people that, it's up to them to listen or not. And if they listen, the game's usually pretty enjoyable, and there's, you know... But if they don't listen, then, you know what, just play the best you can and kind of move on. So I guess there's not really that anxiety of feeling like it's a 1v1, you know, intense clicking intense worrying, worrying about all the things they could be doing. Here it's just kind of like, this game's more predictable, I've played it enough that I know what's going on, and that's what I'm going to do. And when I kind of started playing like that, instead of just worrying all the time, because I think at first there was a lot of anxiety, when I started playing like that, I just started to naturally, my elo started going up and up and up, and I got into gold, and it wasn't as scary as, you know, when before I was trying to, you know, treat it like, where are they? What's going on? This is like the most intense thing in my life, you know? That's that's basically how I feel too. It's it, uh, and I think that one thing definitely does help it along is the fact that like you can really look at individual champions even if you don't know who they are in the game and recognize like what they kind of do and like how big they are and how small they are and what they get from based on what they're supposed to do. So it's a lot easier like just looking at things when you don't know 100% what you're doing to be able to figure out moment to moment decisions of what you should do. Yeah, and, and, like, in StarCraft it can be scarier because you don't know that individual skill level and if you haven't played against them before you have no idea if they're what kind of rush they're going to try or are they going to be more passive and expand. And it's just a lot a lot more intense, but it's like you said if if you know the game and you know some of the basics, you can kind of start to map out what's happening and it's a lot less panicky, a lot less, you know, anxiety. 
Yeah, StarCraft feels like there's like a big curtain, and then in like five minutes they're going to pull aside that curtain, and you're going to get what's behind it. But League of Legends, like you just kind of see how the this, the castle is being built, like brick by brick. You're like, okay, I think I know what's happening here. All right, so uh, it's getting pretty late, and I think we'll leave it there. Uh, so that'll do it for our discussion tonight. Uh, as always, my thanks to our producer Michael Hermes and to our guests Ray and Julia for lending us the time and expertise. Uh, I can't quite tell you what we'll be discussing next week. Uh, we've got a couple different shows coming together. I promise at some point we are going to get around to trying co-op Scourge of War, which I suspect is going to create rage-quitting incidents that will make League of Legends look like Sesame Street. Um, <laughs> either way, no matter what we end up doing next week, uh, I hope you'll join us again. Uh, so that'll do it, and say goodnight, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody.